Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Octavia, you're very sick today. I am. I'm croaky like a frog, I'm afraid. I think you sound all right. Okay, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> are you are you up to your full mental agility? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Acrobatic, okay, good. as always. Excellent. Well, this month's theme is objects, and we'll be looking at all those things that populate our favorite books, from The One Ring to Rule Them All to Miss Havisham's Cake to The Red Wheelbarrow and William Carlos Williams poem of the same name. Very exciting. Um, and as usual, our theme is inspired by our guest. This month, it's the wonderful Harry Parker, whose debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier, is actually narrated by objects, not people. Um, 45 things, ranging from dog tags to a bomb, to a mattress, to a surgical saw. Um, and these objects witness the life of Captain Tom Barnes as he goes to war somewhere in the Middle East. And then after he recovers in England, um, post a horrible IED explosion. Harry himself uh, served with the British Army in Afghanistan and Iraq. And today he is a writer and artist based in London. We will also be talking about the theme and giving our book recommendations. So stay tuned for the next hour on Literary Friction. But first, here is our interview with Harry Parker. Harry Parker, thanks so much for being with us on Literary Friction today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me along. So when you sat down to write this book, who did you envision reading it and why did you want them to read it? I sp well, I sat down to write it. I tried to write a book that I'd want to read and that I'd never read before. Um, and I, it needed to be entertaining enough for me to keep writing it. Um, and actually, although I had an audience in mind to start with, it was just about being creative, I think, to start with. So I... As time went on, I was thinking, you know, who's going to read this book? But it was never, you know, how, where's this going to sit in the market or anything like that? Well, the, one of the unusual things about it is the structure that it's written from the perspective of all these different objects. Um, why did you decide to, to write it like that? So, sort of because um, I'd been writing quite a lot of... Well, I've been trying to write more and more after I'd left the army. Um, and I uh, was looking at ways, I was sort of always skirting around my own experiences, really, because I didn't really want to talk about them. And there's lots of really good sort of nonfiction and reportage out there about recent conflicts, and I s wanted to sort of avoid that. So every time I wrote I was in Helmand or whatever, it's, it just felt a bit wrong to me, basically. And so I was looking at ways of getting around that, sort of taking myself out of out of the narrative uh, and I tried to write something from the point of view of animals and that was a pretty... Which animals? All sorts, yeah. So it was similar sort of structure. You know, there were dogs and all sorts. I mean, it was really bad. Um, <laughs> so the, the, I suppose, the, the next... Sort of this, trying to solve that problem, you know, I suddenly thought, well, why can't I do it from the point of view of a tourniquet or, you know, a bomb? And so that's where that's, you know, that's where it started. And you take the perspective of many different objects from, you know, uh, dog tags to a bag of fertilizer to a mattress to an IED. Um, and I think it, it was interesting that that list isn't really restricted to the items that a soldier would use in wartime. So how did you decide on the objects and, and why did you want that broad range of things? I mean, it's, it was really interesting doing it because as soon as I started writing, I knew that I wanted to sort of, well, I wanted to tell the side of the insurgents and the family and everyone who was involved in the story, really. And so when I was trying to, say, for instance, tell the story of the mother, the, the soldier's mother, who, when she sees him for the first time after he's been injured, I, you know, I, I wanted to find an object that could describe that, you know, and... and quite quickly you know sort of the ha you know the mother's handbag was a really good way in for me to do that because it's quite a personal thing i thought you know and and talking about sort of the afghan culture there's a there's a section of it where they sit down and they chat on a persian rug about culture and i just thought it was really interesting writing about the way a rug is made um and sort of Writing that was really interesting. Yeah, it's a really clever device for uh, moving between different perspectives. And that's one of the things I love the most about the book, is that it's not written from just one side of the conflict or one moment in, in the narrative, essentially. Um, but I wondered, 
were there any objects that didn't make the cut? Were there anything? Was there anything you tried and went, oh god? I mean, beyond the animals. <laughs> yeah, so s- there were there were a few, but it was qu- it felt quite instinctive. There was one, there was one that ketamine was an object, a short ketamine, and it was normally, in fact, that made it to the point where I'd sort of looking around for agents, and it was quite quick. It could, I think it was the point. The point was that it had too much personality. The ketamine, it was becoming quite sort of fear and loathing. You know, it was. And so, and actually, it was you know, it didn't it didn't do anything for the narrative. So, objects that didn't tell a good story um, just didn't make the cut. But it felt quite instinctive as I was writing it. And yeah, yeah. The one that had one of the most sort of intense impacts on me was the surgical saw, which is hardly surprising because it's a an intense perspective to take. Um, but I was saying to Carrie earlier i'm not normally squeamish at all in fact it's it's normally carrie who freaks out and i found it like tough going that bit but powerfully so um but i was thinking about yeah the 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 objects they speak they tell their stories but they don't necessarily have much personality of you know differing personalities and was that also was that a decision that you made yeah so pretty quickly i sort of set rules for myself the first rule was I wasn't allowed to say any place names. So, you know, I didn't want to set it in a particular country. Um, but other rules, like how much an object could know, you, you know, what sort of verbs could you use to describe what an object was doing? And often I'd be writing and then I had to go back and really check to see what they could know. And and also there's there's a moment in the book where suddenly an object knows what one of the characters is thinking. And that's a real leap to make. And there will be some readers who just go... Oh, you know, it's too much, and probably chuck it away. But I tried writing it without, and it was it. I think it still worked, but it was much more sort of abstract. And I need I needed that in there to say what I wanted to say. The surgical saw, yeah. Then then none of them are meant to have personality really, but they have different tones. I think it was is what I was trying to do. And I, I did sit down to write that and think, can I make someone gag? Where, you know that that was part that was part of my as a Did writer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which yeah maybe it's a bit over the top, but it it was just interesting to see if you can if I if you can do that with words and and I you know it was exciting to write in that respect. I think it is exciting to write. I think that when you get a physical response from a reader, it's a big thing. So yeah, you d- you did it. I mean, I'm a weeper anyway, but like the gagging really happened. <laughs> You, you talked a bit about how you came to write about objects, but was the appeal of objects partially, um, you know, the, the word objectivity has object in it. Was it that it was easier to tell the story from a perspective that wasn't that human? Yeah, it, I think it, you know, I'd, I really wanted to, to desentimentalize it um, because if you, with war books, you have, I think there's a lot of, well, there's not a lot, but there's, a, there's books out there that are quite sort of black and white about it. And I think by sort of taking ta- taking that step back, removed lots of the politics, lots of the part. You know, I wasn't interested in whether we should be there or not, or whether we were given the right sort of equipment. And there's been lots of books about that, but I wanted to write a novel. And I suppose the objects let me do that. And as I started to write, they, you know, they I, they suddenly realised they did a lot more of other. They, it was weird. They let you do things that was really exciting, but they were also a real constraint, actually, at times. There's, there were parts of the book where I had to really work out how I was going to do them. And going back to the sort of rules, I sort of came up with the rules that if, if, they're t- if, if an object's touching someone, then they know what they're thinking. And if it goes inside them, they have more of an understanding. I mean, there's, there's, I don't know if that works but throughout the whole book, but there was, I was certainly thinking about that as I was writing it. So you served in, in the British Army in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and I wanted to ask you how you came to write this book in the way that you did when it relates to your personal experience, whether you wanted it to that not to be a factor, um, and if you ever considered writing more of a memoir piece or did you always want it to be a fictionalised account? Um, because I can imagine that's quite a challenging space to, to write in, right, when you're fictionalising something that also very much happened to you. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was very... It play, whether the the sort of autobiographical parts of it run all the way through it, but whenever I started a scene or a chapter that was different or w- was similar to my own experiences, it always went somewhere else, and it had so many other things put you know 
placed on it because of firstly the point of view, but also the characters weren't weren't me. They were, you know, they were invented. Um, and it goes back again to that being able to say more. I think with fiction, I certainly felt I was that by fictionalizing it, I could make a much more interesting story. And really, all I wanted to do, you know, what I wanted to do most of all, what I was holding on to most of all, was tell the most exciting and powerful story I could. Um, but there was definitely themes in it, and I. Sp the writing a memoir just never interested me. I think I would have just got bored. Can you talk a little bit more about your time in the army? So you joined up when you were 23, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I joined up and I went to officer training, which was a year long. And then you have sort of more technical training to become an in infantry officer after that. And then I deployed to Iraq for seven months. And I served in Basra, which is in the south of Iraq, um, which is very interesting time actually it was a really interesting place to be at the time we were there because of the politics that were going on what were the politics going on well it was it was at the time when um the jam was Jaish al-Mahdi which was the insurgents in Basra city were starting to have a increased influence I suppose and the British army was starting to withdraw and there was this thing called the accommodation where the British government basically made a pact with them that they could withdraw out. And it was just interesting because the Americans at the time were surging in soldiers and we were withdrawing. So there was this sort of strange balance, which is a very sort of high-level political stuff that when you're one of 30 guys rolling through a city of 2 million people, feels very distant, but is actually slightly playing on your mind. Um, then after that, I did sort of 18 months of turnaround training, pre-deployment training, and then deployed to Afghanistan when I was 26. And um, how long were you serving for? In total, mm -hmm. um, I think about eight years, but sort of four years of that were rehabilitation. Um, so after I was injured, I was sort of out of that sort of standard military experience and into a slightly different experience of rehabilitation and other professional qualifications and desk jobs and things. And I should say, because this is... Um, important I think to the story is that you have um, some of the same injuries that your main character Tom has um, so it how how do you I, I think this kind of relates to what Octavia said but how do you navigate that similarity between your main character and you and especially when you're talking about something like um, you know being amputated and having injuries and dealing with the aftermath of, of war and and rehabilitation I think well, very, very early on, I, I wondered how closely I should map my own experiences onto the, in terms of the injuries, should I place them on the main character or not? And I've not said this before, but I, although it's not autobiographical, it is in a way, the whole book is a self-portrait. It's just done through a number of filters. So the main character who stains almost identical injuries to me, but probably less complicated, um, he's a different person to me and he was, he's written differently but he goes through a similar experience um, but, in this, but the, the characters who are insurgents the boys, the father they're all, they're all parts of me that I wanted to explore and even though they're seen as the enemy to the reader that's how I could make them more real I think for me and make it more interesting if that makes sense I'm fascinated by this idea of the entire book as a self-portrait I really love that um, yeah. and it makes me think of it in a new light and one of the things I really loved about this book and it's something you talked about a little bit earlier was your um, it's a very in a way it's a very neutral look at the conflict um, that's happening right now in, in various places in the Middle East because you you look with equal almost objectivity on you know two boys who one of whom is is part of the insurgency and on the soldiers and on the families. And um, was that, uh, I mean, even if that's an objective view, it's also, in a way, it's a political view as well because it's it's saying something very specific about um, who's right and who's wrong in the conflict. So was that an opinion that you developed over time? or When when you say who who is right and wrong, what... what well, I I guess it's easy to think of insurgents as the enemy. And I didn't feel that way while I was reading the book. I felt like they were humans, um, much like the soldiers that they were setting IED explosives for. Um, yeah. And, and I, I wonder how you came to that 
perspective and why you decided to write it that way? I think, um, you know, the, war is obviously a really de dehumanizing activity. And when you're in it, it's very easy to place your enemy in that way. You dehumanize them in order to be able to kill them. And that's part of it. But in the sort of counterinsurgency that we were doing, there was a lot of us that had to understand why the enemy were doing wh what they were doing, what motivated them, um, why they were there. And you pretty soon realize you get to understand more about them and you're never going to culturally understand them. I'm not saying that, but at least you're trying to understand them. And often that is to be able to defeat them. You know, that's why you're there. But at the same time, it gives you an appreciation of their of their situation. And so, I'd, you know, I'd often think, you know, what is motivating these people? And certainly after I was injured, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd think about what you'd, how you'd act if a tank rumbled down your street, you know, if, if rumble outside my house of these soldiers from a different country, and, you know, whether they're occupying your country or not, how would I act? And actually, as a young man, I'd probably be planting bombs. Um, so I suppose by, as soon as I, as we talked about the self-portrait thing, as soon as I placed them, made them into characters that I invested something in, you re I rehumanized them. But I definitely have always felt that, um, that they're not, that, you know, the reasons that I joined the army are pretty similar probably to the reasons that they picked up weapons. Yeah, and uh, the the thing that ran through my head the whole time I was reading the book, especially because of the title, you know, Anatomy of a Soldier, thinking about anatomy in a more abstract sense, kind of social anatomy and all of that. Um, I was thinking about uh, the, the fact that warfare these days is very different from how it was to say around you know, the First World War. And I have grown up in a nation that has been at war a lot of my life and I've never experienced any um, war violence on my doorstep. And um, I wondered if, if it was deliberate or if it was just something that emerged kind of with the integrity of the story that so much of the book um, happens after, after the event of, the, of Tom's injuries. And um, a lot of it is not in a war situation, wartime situation. You've got surgeons, you've got, you know, as you said before, the rehabilitation process and thinking about, um, and it was also actually brought on by the cover of the book, which to me looks a bit like cauterized flesh. I don't think it's meant to be, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the scars left by war that, mm. that touch far beyond people who have enlisted and made that decision. Um, so I haven't phrased that really as a question. <laughs> I, sp I, I suppose I was, <laughs> I was trying to do quite a few things, and one of them was have parallels in the book, which were really just interesting for me as a writer, but showing that recovery was really important because it it was ho it was a hopeful thing in for my experience and I wanted to have an element of the book that was hopeful as well but I also wanted to show the what what the actions of the sort of conflict and what what the actions on the insurgents and the local population and how they reflected in back here basically that was really important um and that I suppose yeah that so that I, it was an intentional thing to do um, there's a point in the book when Tom tells his mother that he doesn't regret any of what happened to him, even though he's lost most of, well, most of both of his legs. Mm. Um, and not only that, he wouldn't change anything about the experience. Um, why did you decide to write that? And was that something that also happened to you? Yeah, there's, I mean, there are moments that are, that is one of the moments that's very true to life. And I, um, I did feel that, and fairly quickly, actually, surprisingly quickly. And it's not something that just happened, and then you never feel like, you know, it wasn't like a sudden moment, but at that moment, that's, you know, when I said it, there were still moments afterwards where you get up and you think, you know, this is rubbish. Um, <laughs> and that still happens, but it's very rare now. And I, I, de I definitely feel that. I mean, I've been very lucky with my, all the help I've had and the rehabilitation and a really tight family but it became part of who I was very quickly. So, I, I mean, it's a stupid thing to say, isn't it? Because, you know, you can, you can never, you could, you, you could never change it, but I, I you know, I, I wouldn't. And my life's much more interesting because of it. I mean, at the time I was probably quite high on quite a lot of drugs, <laughs> but there's, there's quite, it's quite an exciting thing as well, getting better. There's something, 
getting better is there ha is has a certain um, certain excitement to it. Yeah. yeah, there's the redemptive quality, right, of recovering from something extreme, um, and it, it parallels to you know the land and nationhood and all of that stuff that gets ravaged by war in one way or another and then gets to rebuild itself. Um, I want to change tack completely and just ask you what kind of books you like to read and what kind of uh, literature you seek, you know, enjoyment in, basically. Yeah, I, well, I, maybe it's one of the reasons I could write this book. I'm not very well read, or I wasn't before. I'm trying to catch up now, basically. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, I'll read anything. You know, I'll often... It's what, what I see, um, just, you know, anything that sort of comes... Come, come, I see on online or something. Before I started writing, I was really into um, Ian M. Banks's sci-fi novels, um, the culture novels. They're, uh, they're, they were always... I mean, I used to go back to them lots of times. Um, and uh, when I started to... When I started writing and started to write more, uh, focus on my experiences, I started reading more sort of Hemingway and things like that. So it's not a very good answer, but I, I was just trying to catch up now because I get asked so many questions about what I read and I'm <laughs> bad, poorly read. Um, that's interesting because, you know, it's very easy to, as a, you know, as a student of literature, you might put this in the tradition of other soldiers who have written novels about, um, about wartime. So, you know, the things they carried Tim mm. O'Brien or, um, you know, all of the First World War port poets. I mean, there are too many to list almost. Um, and were, were you consciously writing in that tradition or was that just, you I'd were just writing about... I'd never heard, I mean, I'd never heard of the things they carried. And then as soon as I gave it something, oh, this is like the things they carried. And I suppose first I was like, God, somebody's got, somebody's done it already. And then I went and read it and then it's not quite the same. Um, but the things they carried, I, it's, I think it's similar. It's an American version of almost birdsong, you know, it's taught in schools and things. And I'd never come across it, but it's so interesting now when people say, oh, it's like this or it's like that. And it's really interesting going and picking them up and reading, you know, reading that tradition. But at the <laughs> same time, I had, no, I had no real idea that it was an unusual thing to do, really. I mean, I didn't, I, you know, I just thought, of course, it's been done before. But, and it, to me, it felt no weirder than at an op omniscient point of view either. I mean, that's weird in itself. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, yeah, it, you know, I suppose in a way, it meant that I had, there was no baggage, really, other than Ian M. Banks and knife drones and things like that. Did you imagine that you were going to write when you joined the army, um, or is it something that came later? I I've always done visual art, so I did an art foundation course when I was much younger. So I was painted and drew, and it was only after I was injured that I started to write. I was asked to write a couple of things for charities um, of my experiences, and I think. That sort of, I really enjoyed that, but it felt very similar to the sort of visual, the experience of doing visual art for me. Um, so it came after, you know, it's in the last sort of four or five years that I've been writing. It, it's interesting to hear that you did visual art because in a way, picking objects as things to narrate, there, there is a visual element to that. Do you... Do you see it that as psychologically inspired by your? <laughs> I don't know. I Let's dig deep. Um, objects. Th there's something so about being a soldier, and you, you. There's a scene in the book where he puts everything that he's going to take to war. He carries it, and he's carrying everything. It's like the things they carry. But when you then, when you're in a combat zone, you are that you have. You wear your body armor and your helmet, and these are the things that keep you protect you. And you have your weapons, your grenades, and your rifle, and those things that let you kill the enemy. And as you fight and as you ex you exist out there, this stuff gets battered and covered in your own sweat. And I think there is an element of sort of you look after your kit, but also it starts to have more meaning in in because you're surviving with it almost. So I think in in that sense, it felt you know so the, there's the luck and ritual. In sort of bound in your equipment so in that sense I think it felt quite a natural thing to do but I you know objects they're such yeah in one sense I have no I haven't, don't really have any sentimental feeling about any objects anymore but they do they do carry so much meaning don't they and yeah about the way we experience the world I suppose you know yeah, I think I've brought this up before but there's um in To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf she has a 
a sort of um, interlude called Time Passes, where the entire history of the First World War is told through this house that's decaying while the owners stop coming to it. Um, and it's one of my favorite passages in literature. And I, I can see how, mm. you know, even if you hadn't read that, you're writing, it's you're, really, you're yeah. grasping those, that power of objects and the meaning that we as people mm. sort of force onto them. Earlier, you said you set a rule for yourself that you wouldn't say specifically where this was set. Why did you want to do that? I think um, Lydia Davis said something like, all her short stories have air around them, something like that. So they're, so they have their, they're in, they're of their own space. And I was trying to do something like that. I think I was trying to keep it, for me as a writer, keep it, have a sort of air around it or a space around it, which meant that it was, it could stand on its own by itself. Um, if it's, it'd be its own world in a sense. And of course, every reader will place Afghanistan back on it, or Iraq, but it but it's not meant to be like that. It's meant to be a bit more... Of, it, it allowed me to make more cultural inaccuracies. And, you know, it was... And with the objects, it meant that I could change the reality a bit. Did you feel any sort of burden of truth? Um, because I know when, when people talk about war stories a lot, um, they dwell on, you know, this is what it's really like to be in war. Um, or, you know, if especially as you're a soldier who, who has actually experienced it. Um, or were or were you more interested in fictional truths? You talked about the difference between nonfiction and fiction earlier. I mean, the only the only true the only things that I was very wary of was if, and we'll see, is yet to be published. But if people who had been there with me placed real events on the events that I'd reimagined, and were angry about that fact, um, that worried me. So I would remove any sort of any sort of two blatant references to the experiences that I knew people would um, would uh, remember. The other thing was there are there are some more there are some books out there that try I think would try too hard to reflect exactly what it was like. So, for instance, they use swear words all the time in speech for soldiers, um, which is absolutely fine because that's how soldiers speak. But in when you're a soldier and you're there, you don't hear any of the effing and blinding because it doesn't mean, you know, it, you're not, because you're used to it, you're attuned to the way that soldiers speak. So I, there's a bit of effing and blinding, but it's meant to give a, so it's a, you know, it's meant to give a feel for what it was like, not exactly what it was like. I mean, people talk about that with, um, with speech all the time in books, but so it's not meant to be a complete reflection of what it was actually like. There is definitely fiction in there. And um, talking of kind of releasing the book into the world, obviously it's about to be published. Um, do you think that it portrays the life life in the army positively or negatively or neutrally? I mean, th and that thing, that question of people reading into it, personal details that may not be completely true either, right? Because mm -hmm. people always um, place the character, the figure of the writer. You know, the writer is not actually dead, <laughs> unfortunately. They're going to weave it back mm -hmm. in. Um, I wonder, are you apprehensive about p how people might respond to it as a document that, that talks about the experience of war? When I, I, you know, I tried to write it so it was completely neutral and I wanted to talk about the excitement of being a soldier as much as I wanted to talk about the sort of trauma of being injured. <laughs> but I'm not sure the balance is quite there. But, but I, I mean, somebody's already said to me, you know, it's the most anti-war book I've ever read. And that I didn't set out for that to, for that to be the case, um, uh, but of course, I mean, if you write thoughtfully about war, it's going to be anti-war. Um, I can't remember the second part of your question. Oh, what people will think of it, uh, or will they read? It? I suppose the only thing that worries me is, and it's it's people thinking they know me because they've read the book. But that's probably the same as writing any sort of fiction, um, because. You know, I, I'm allergic to any sort of acting, but it felt like acting when writing a lot of it. Um, do you do you plan to write another book? Are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah, I am, yeah. Great. Can you tell us anything about it? Is it top secret? God, it it's sort of... Is it not the kiss that you just kill it every time you talk? Every time <laughs> I talk about it, it sort of w wilts or something. I don't know. Um, it's, not a, it's got no soldiers in, and it's got no inanimate objects. 
There are objects in it, but they're not narrating as much as they them. Yeah. <laughs> Harry, thank you so not much for coming on the show today. You've been brilliant, and this is... I have a million more questions to ask you, so may have you in for round two at some okay. point. <laughs> I'll write another one. Okay, that was the lovely Harry Parker, author of Anatomy of a Soldier, which is out now in bookshops. So next on the show, Octavia, following on from that interview, um, we'll be talking about objects. We will indeed. Not an ambitious theme at all, no, once again. No, no, no. Easy. Uh, sort of encompassing the whole world here. Ten minutes, ten minutes. Um, possibly have bit off a bit more than we can chew. Almost every novel or poem or really any literature literary object has an object in it and um most authors oh, i see what you did there that was very meta uh, yes yeah good plan. <laughs> that just came came to me in the moment <laughs> got you on fire today. um <laughs> um and and almost every object in literature of course will have some symbolism injected into it um whether that is deliberate by an author or just how we read into things as humans who see symbolism in the world around us um when I was preparing for the show, I kept thinking about this incredibly dreary exercise we had to do in sixth grade English, where we read The Pearl by John Steinbeck. Have you read that? Yeah. It's I a really that. terrible, um, heavy handed novella yes. about a, pish a fisherman named. A fisherman. <laughs> <laughs> you really loved it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Anyway, I'd, yeah. Pearl fisherman, things go wrong etc. But um, we had to make a list of 30 different objects in the book and then draw them for some reason and then write what they symbolized. And that really sucked the fun out of <laughs> objects in literature for me for a while there. So I'm hoping this won't be that boring. It won't be. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's make our own list first to start off. What are, what are some of the most juicy, exciting literary objects that came, came to mind when you were thinking about this topic? Well, first up for me was a, a fabulous ancient phallic symbol, the Excalibur sword from Arthurian mm. legend, which obviously... Um, is kind of metonymical for all power and magical destiny. Um, and I love it. <laughs> and I want it. And I wish I could find it. Um, and I also thought about the Turkish Delight, the Box of Turkish Delight mm. in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe when uh, the Snow Queen bribes, isn't it Edmund? I get the two boys confused I anyway, which, whichever one, the Doubting Thomas, Edmund. Um, Eddie's waving with his thumb up saying, I've got it right. Um, <laughs> Edmund to, to come over onto the dark side with Turkish Delight. And I, I mean, I hate Turkish Delight, but I but I understand why he was, t you know, um, tempted by it. These wartime kids and in this magical land and these beautiful jewel-colored, sparkly, edible things. Um, but also, obviously, one of the main purposes of, uh, of objects in literature, actually, that's a bold claim, but often they are um, romantic fetishes, aren't they? Mm. Like the, the metonymical symbol of the loved one. Um, I was thinking in Othello, there's Desdemona, has the hanky. Um, yeah, it's the, that's an interesting point about fetish. And I think, you know, fetish we often use about other people, but of course it's related to materialism and things. Mm, totally. um, and, and the fetishization of things it is often, you know, that's part of lifting something from just being an object into something that represents something else. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I think you're right. There is a there is a certain like sexiness to 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 a lot of the symbols that we remember from literature. So I was thinking of um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the girdle. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, it basically it's a set of panties and panties. Carry. I can't <laughs> let you use that word. Sorry, it I knew you used me that so one. Deeply. Okay, and um. The you know the Madeleine and Proust there's something yeah. I mean not not sexy but um, sensual. the sensual and evocative yeah. um, and I think that's true of, of food especially um, yeah but also just possession isn't it so, you know you can't ever fully possess the loved one but you can possess things the loved one touched like I was thinking of I have to be honest actually I was thinking initially of the film Clueless which is based on the novel Emma by Jane Austen. Um, but in the novel, Harriet collects tokens of Mr. Elton, and there's this funny scene where um, she's very, you know, 
Austin's poking fun at the way that we imbue these objects with such meaning and it was like a discarded tissue and a plaster and all this stuff but she's connecting them to this the loved one who doesn't want her back and you know like the box of things and and that makes me think of voodoo dolls and you know yeah, or, or relics and Christianity and the thing about Christianity is this idea that objects in their very ordinariness suggests the extraordinary um I, I'm thinking of a passage that Marilyn Robinson has in um, her first book, Housekeeping, in which she talks about um, the, f the fact that we're more willing to believe that Christ had, you know, touched a stone or um, sort of brushed a leaf than we would anything else. Um, the, the, this, this idea that objects can outlast us and outlive us and... Um, they they point towards a, a much more powerful version of time and reality. Mm, and a sense that they silently bear witness, mm. you know, that they don't bring... It's funny, isn't it? Because on the one hand, there's the sense that they don't bring their own subjectivity to things. But on the other hand, human beings are incredibly sentimental and we ascribe all kinds of very sentimental um, aspects and ideas to certain objects. Yeah. And I think that's that's one thing that Harry was going for in his book is um, you can scrub. Well, you can try to scrub away sentimentality by having the things that narrate be things that wouldn't feel emotional about the very emotional things that are happening to um, his character in the book. Yeah, absolutely. In Harry's book, Anatomy of a Soldier, it's narrated by objects. Um, and we did a show about talking animals, of which there are very many. Um, mainly in children's literature, but also we, we talked about um, a lot of examples of talking animals. But talking objects are hard to find. Um, they are. I found, <laughs> I found, um, I did find a couple of interesting sounding. Um, one is a novel by Charles Johnston um, called Chrysal, or The Adventures of a Guinea, first <laughs> published in 1760, uh, which is narrated by a gold coin. Wow. Um, you know, and there are some kids, there's the Brave Little Toaster, for instance. But um, a lot of the talking objects, and, and this is true in Sleeping Beauty as well, are humans in object form, rather objects having a life of their own. Yes, it's interesting. And that's something that goes back to Greek tragedies and um, comedies like Zeus. Zeus was constantly taking the shape of, I think normally animals actually, rather than objects. But um, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm mentioning children's literature is important here because... It is in children's literature that things get brought to life in order to explain some kind of allegorical truth. Like I was thinking um, all the English people listening will remember Hey Diddle Diddle, um, The Dish Ran Away With The Spoon, which is a nursery rhyme. I can't remember all of otherwise I would happily perform it for the you. The Cat and the Fiddle. The Cat and the Fiddle, yeah. exactly. I think we had that in America had it too. as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but this, uh, this rhetorical device actually has a name. Um, here comes the science bit, everybody. And this is a uh, hell for our producer because it involves loads of peas. So I'm going to be really careful when I say <laughs> it. Prosopopoeia, um, which is the rhetorical device when a speaker or writer communicates via um, another person or an object. Um, and it's a figure of speech when an inanimate object is ascribed human characteristics or like anthropomorphization of animals, but also mm. of objects. Um, and one of the kind of more chilling examples, and this is definitely not in children's literature that I remembered, was um, from Brian Catling's book, The Vore, which was Max Porter's brilliant recommendation when we had him on the show a while ago, which I've started and haven't finished yet, but I'm loving it. It was very um, contorted and dark and complex, but in, in basically the first chapter, the protagonist turns his uh, lover, who was a kind of shaman, um, her dead transcendental body into a bow and arrow. And so he, he turns her into this living object. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's creepy, but it's, it's also beautiful. It's kind of an act of love. And again, that made me think about this idea of the metonymical object that when the, when the person, you know, flesh is weak and we will all die, and once the person has passed on, then the objects that, that are left behind by that person take on this kind of magical, you know, and I, I can't think, God, I'm sure in endless poems and novels, you know, like my father's watch or whatever after mm. he's dead and the shoes of a dead man or, you know, um, and they do, they become incredibly potent. Yeah, or, or the 
the stuff of the body itself, which becomes an object, a skeleton, for instance, absolutely, um, the ashes of someone who's died. And oh my God, um, yeah. we try, we, yeah, we, we cling to the memory of people through the things that they have touched, getting back to this idea of, you know, Christ. Yeah, totally. Who was the, the, the first, well, probably not the first, but maybe the most significant human on the earth who we still cling to things um, that we can touch and feel that are tangible that might have some connection to him. Yeah. Um, and that's incredibly potent. Well, let's talk about our um, favorite objects in books. Do you want to start? I will start. I will happily start. Um, or books about objects maybe is better. Books about objects. Yeah. Mine is uh, The Book Thief, which is a novel from 2005 written by Marcus Zusak. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's, it's like you said at the beginning of our chat here, you know, books as objects themselves. But books are kind of a tricky one because they are objects, but they're also worlds and universes and um, knowledge and all the rest. And this book really, uh, really kind of gets to the heart of that. Um, it's set during World War Two. It is terribly moving, um, but not in a kind of awful way. It's it's one of those books. I really, I mean, it's a it's a phenomenal story, and it's a story about storytelling. Um, it's the story of a girl called Liesel Memminger, or Memminger, who's nine um, and living in Germany during World War II, during the Nazi occupation. Um, but it's narrated by Death himself, and not a kind of comedy, Terry Pratchett-esque uh, version of Death, but really um, a kind of Death almost is an object in himself. He's he's compassionate, but he's also distanced, and he kind of describes what's going on. Um, anyway, Liesel goes to live with foster parents uh, as the political situation deteriorates and the Nazis gain more and more power. Um, and the family she goes to live with end up hiding a Jewish man named Max. And basically, it's about this girl's development in, in the house with these three other adults. Um, she gets taught how to read by her foster father, and she begins to steal books, uh, the books that the Nazis are looking for to burn. And so she becomes the book thief of the title. And it's really, it, it's about the liberating potential of language and how books are kind of a coded object. So if you can't read, they are inanimate. But once you learn how to read, you can open them and unlock the code that's within. Um, and I don't know, I just, it's, it's a really, really great story. I enjoyed reading it so much. It made me cry a lot, but um, in a kind of cathartic way. And I think essentially its message is hopeful mm. about the power of literature and storytelling to bond us together as, you know, to find our common humanity, essentially. A few people have recommended me The Book Thief. I never read it because I thought it sounded boring. Lots of like, people, Like yeah. well-trodden territory, but... No, it's great, and it's not sentimental. Pe you know, I was wary that it might be really sentimental, and I don't like having my heartstrings pulled. But, you know, any book that's dealing with genocide is going to be... Uh, you can't avoid a certain level of sentimentality around that, I think, because you have to tread so softly. But he's, it's, he's a great writer, you know? It's a really, really good story. Yeah, and I am always wooed by uh, stories about books as, as objects as well as texts. Totally. Um, yeah, Borges would love this, you yeah. know? It's like it's super Borgesian. Okay, cool. Maybe I'll read it now. Yeah, you should read it. I'll lend it to you. Well, I am going to recommend the book that I mentioned in our interview with Harry Parker, The Things That They Carried, or The Things They Carried, rather, by Tim O'Brien. Um, it's a book I read in high school, and I think that's where a lot of other Americans encounter it, because it is, you know, much actually like The Book Thief, though I haven't read it. it it's a book that is quite obvious about his, its themes. It's it's an easy book to discuss, and especially if you're trying to teach kids about the Vietnam War, it's, it's quite a good book to discuss. But I don't think as many people have read it here. No, I'd, I'd actually not even heard of it. Yes, well, I'll <laughs> tell you all about <laughs> it. Educate me, Karen. Um, so it... Um, is t Tim O'Brien served in the Vietnam War and um, published a few books about it, actually. This was, um, this was not his first book about the Vietnam War. Um, and it follows a platoon of soldiers um, and narrated by a character named Tim O'Brien. Um, yes, it's very metafictional. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's a powerful meditation on both the brutal realities of war and, and the power of the story. Um, O'Brien makes the point over and over that sometimes fiction can be more truthful than truth, which I, again, am always attracted to in books because I desperately want to believe it's true as a, as a lover of fiction. Um, and uh, this, the title, The Things They Carried, um, reflects the fact that there are lists throughout the novel 
of the things that the men in the platoon carried. So not just their gear, but their personal affects, you know, comic books, pictures of their girlfriends, etc. Much, much like in Harry's novel, actually. And this becomes a, a, a tender and humanizing device um, about all of the different personalities in the platoon and how they cope with the literal weight of war. Um, I also wonder if both O'Brien and Parker were, were drawn to the objectivity of objects um, because of how brutal and horrible war is. Sometimes objects represent the only way that you can talk about something that's so terrible. Right, we are back with Harry Parker for the book recommendations section of our show today. Um, Octavia, do you want to start with your book? Yep. Um, I'm going to talk very excitedly about a book that you actually gave me, Carrie. It was my Christmas present. Um, it's called Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankine. And um, you nailed it, my love, with the present. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. Blew my socks off. Um, and I wanted to read it. It was published last year. And I hadn't got around to it, and suddenly, you know, it landed in my lap. And books tend to come into my life this way. <laughs> um, it's extraordinary. It's it's a she's a polymath writer, Rankine. She writes poetry. She also writes academically. Um, she writes plays, and it's an incredibly important piece of work um, that is very sort of twisty and genre bendy. Um, essentially, it's a long prose poem, but. Um, broken up with images and a kind of drive to give voice to injustice, racial injustice in the United States. Um, but it, it, and testimony and uh, personal experience also. Um, and Rankine described it as an attempt to pull the lyric back into its realities. Um, and so she's kind of looking at the everyday racism that we as white people with our global privilege have no concept of whatsoever, you know? And it's a really, for that reason, um, an important book for everyone to read, just to have their privilege che uh, checked because people don't like to be pushed in those ways. Um, and I'm pretty right on politically and I didn't like to be pushed in that way either, but I f it was really uh, necessary. Um, but it's it's a pleasurable thing to read as well because it's so full of imagination and um, excitement and the imagery she uses is very potent. Um, and I think just especially right now when we're, we're living in this moment where Western nations are veering towards quite a worrying isolationism and the rise of the far right is a real thing. Um, just, to, just to get right into somebody else's experience so immediately is, is wonderful. So yeah, I, I think everybody should read it. So I gave it to you, but I haven't actually read it yet. <laughs> so that was a very good recommendation for me. Um, and as you say, the longer the U.S. election season progresses, the more it seems we need books like that. Um, so, Harry, do you want to give your recommendation next? Yes, yeah, sure. I chose a book called Pincher Martin by William Golding. So <laughs> um, I read it quite recently, and I, the only book I'd ever read of his was The Lord of the Flies, which sort of everyone reads it, well, everyone at my school read. Mm. Um, and... I didn't really realize that he'd written a load of other books and I read Pincher Martin the other day and it slightly blew me away. It's, it's a short book about a, a sailor who gets shipwrecked and he, at the start he's drowning and he essentially he gets, um, he gets marooned on a tiny little rock, piece of rock in the middle of the Atlantic and it's a book about him surviving. Um, but the, the writing is just so um, intense. We, when the sailor is drowning or thinks he's drowning, you're just the writing is breathless. And, and then when he's surviving, it, it's just it's very beautifully written. And then at the end, the, almost the last sentence reframes the whole book. And um, it's actually quite a frightening book. I mean, it's not for everyone, I know that. And um, it's strange. And it's actually one of the scariest books I've read. Um, but it had a, the whole book had a physical impact on me. And, um, yeah, I thought it was a, a, a good book. 
That sounds fascinating. And I've kind of lived my life assuming that William Golding only wrote <laughs> Lord of the Flies, which is really embarrassing. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, so my recommendation is a book I just started. Uh, so take this as you will. But um, I can already tell I'm going to love it. And I'm going to read all a thousand pages of it. <laughs> which I think was one of the reasons I hadn't picked it up before now because I kept, people kept recommending it to me and I kept thinking, I really want to read that. And then I looked at it and I thought, oh my God. Um, but it's a book called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Um, Andrew Solomon is a trained um, psychologist. He's also a writer. And um, it's a nonfiction book about parents who have children who are radically different from them in many different ways. So it deals with... Um, autism, prodigies, children born of rape, Down syndrome, psychopaths, um, any sort of family where th the parents have had to deal with immense difference. Um, and it's really a celebration of love and how difference can unite us, which sounds very um, fluffy, but it's actually just, I mean, it, and it is incredibly compassionate and emotional, but also really well-researched. Um, really quite objective, um, very astutely written. And um, the reason I decided to pick it up in the first place was because I went to go see him speak at Jewish Book Week recently. And um, he was in conversation about an earlier book he'd written about depression. But he was just so compassionate and articulate and fascinating that I thought, I have to read something that this man has written. Um, and so I picked it up and started reading it, and, and I'm so glad I did. I mean, it's like from the first sentence, you're just hooked in. I, the first sentence is, there's no such thing as reproduction, which I think is so provocative and interesting. Um, and it's also both incredibly personal. He's gay, and he talks about that as, as um, how he first sort of related to and got into the subject. But, but also, of course, like spanning, I think it was like 10 years of research and many different kinds of family and people, and, and it's just... It's a real magnum opus, um, and so I, I would really recommend it. It sounds amazing, and I'm so thrilled that you didn't say Infinite Jest, because I really thought that's where you were going. <laughs> already read that, babe. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Harry Parker, whose debut novel, Anatomy of a Soldier, is out in bookstores now, and to Eddie Knight for production and music and correcting us when we're wrong about things. Yes, thank goodness. Um, Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or on ntslive.co.uk. And you can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, so please leave comments and interact with us as much as you like. Um, and if you want to give us a five star rating, we'd love you forever. And you are also allowed to correct us as well. If we, I think we may, might have made some howlers. Oh, this yeah. Episode, so Raiders we'll see. The lost art. I am Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.